Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 66th episode, we return with artist Kay Healy, who comes to us from Philadelphia. We talk at great length about a variety of her different bodies of work that include screen printing, installation, and of course, talked about her most recent works that incorporate memory and investigation of furniture and interiors. We talk a little bit about a number of her projects, including her installation coming home at the Philadelphia International Airport, which was really exciting. Once again, you can check out her work at kheely.com. So please go ahead and do that before the interview. And also, we'd like to invite any of you that have never heard of Studio Break to check out many of the other podcasts we have. Again, we feature a variety of different podcasts on studiobreak.com. Again, each of those different artists have images of their work, links to their website, and a full-length interview discussing all of their ideas and what they're currently thinking about. So please go ahead and check it out. Once again, you can find us in iTunes, so subscribe there. Or if you want to find out more about Studio Break or some of the other artists coming up, please like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. All right, that's all the announcements that we have right now, so we'll go immediately to this interview with Kay Healy. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this afternoon by Kay Healy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm hoping that you're, you're not becoming increasingly frustrated, so thanks again <laughs> for your patience. Mm-hmm. So as we were just talking, we were just getting acquainted. I'd like to start out at the beginning so we can kind of get a little bit of an idea of uh, who our guests are. So if you could talk to us a little bit about where you're currently living and then uh, where you grew up, and then we can kind of go from there. Sure. So I currently live in Philadelphia. Um, I have my studio here and I live in Center City. I moved here about seven years ago when I started the a graduate program at the University of the Arts in book arts and printmaking. And I'm originally from Staten Island, New York, and I grew up there. I was there, um, let's see, until I went to college. So it was basically my, my childhood area. And I went to school in Ohio. So um, it was kind of a, an adjustment from Staten Island. And um, my school is Oberlin College, where I studied art history with a concentration in architecture. I did eventually minor in studio art, but that was um, not until my senior year of college. Well, and you and you were saying, you know, that you had you had pursued um, art history, mm-hmm. and so um, it's kind of interesting because you had also mentioned earlier that your mother, I believe, was a, was an artist and. Well, so my mother, um, she still is an artist, and she's actually originally from Chicago. She's from Elmhurst, Illinois, mm-hmm. and she went to the Art Institute of Chicago in the 70s. And growing up, she was also my art teacher in elementary school, and um, I was always very encouraged to create art and told I was very talented, and so it was something that was definitely important to my family. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I didn't see it as being that much of an accomplishment. And when people would ask me if I wanted to be an artist, like my mom, I would very quickly tell them that, no, I wanted to make money. <laughs> so right. That was my response. So it never occurred to me that I would go into the arts. My senior year of high school, I did end up 
taking an art history class. It was the first time it was offered at my school. It was AP Art History. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember these beautiful new Janssen textbooks that we got that were, they were so gigantic and so amazing to me. And um, I loved, I really loved that class. But there was a moment when I decided, you know, as I was filling out my applications for college that I wanted to major in art history. It was a very wonderful day when I was taking the bus to my high school, which was right on the harbor near the Staten Island Ferry. Mm -hmm. And I decided, this is my senior year, I just, it was a whim, it was on a whim, it was a total impulse. I just decided to cut school and continue on the bus and get on the ferry. And I took the ferry to Manhattan and I took, figured out the train to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I just spent the whole day at the Met. And um, wow. it was it was incredible because all of these things that I'd been seeing in my textbooks, it was, you know, there they were right there. And it was a really special moment. It was kind of a, a moment of independence. And I decided that this is what I wanted to pursue. I really wanted to study the objects that people had made and kind of beautiful things and, and transcend, you know, the everyday grind of, uh, <laughs> of my normal my normal life. <laughs> I'm curious though, too, then. So in terms of like what you're interested in at the time, I mean, was art kind of obviously always there, but I mean, were there other kind of fields that you were interested in or was it just something like you're kind of saying this, this course just kind of guided you that way? No, I had a number of interests. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I, you know, what I, when I grew up, right. <laughs> um, I was also very interested. I played the French horn. I really liked music and, um, I don't know. I had, I had a number of interests, so it was very unclear to me what I was going to do at that mm-hmm. point. Um, I just knew what I liked in the moment and, and art history was appealing to me. So, um, I started studying there and also Oberlin has a fantastic art history department. They have some really amazing teachers. They have a beautiful art museum. Um, and I think you almost, uh, you get attached to the teachers sometimes more than even the subject. So I had a certain teacher, um, Andy Shankin, who taught architecture and I really loved his classes. And so that also, sort of guided me into saying like, yes, this is a, this is something I want to pursue, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't know what the end goal was. I mean, I flirted with the idea of being a conservator, but I can't stand the idea of chemistry. So that was out. And then I thought about going into, um, historical preservation for a while. And then, um, I realized that people in historical preservation mostly just consult. They don't actually do any, they don't, you know, they're not the ones swinging from the cathedrals, remosaicing things. (laughs) So um, the reality of that set in and I was like, okay, I don't think that's for me. And um, meanwhile, I I took some studio art courses, which were a requirement of my art history major. And I really, really enjoy them. As one of my teachers said, I caught the bug. And mm-hmm. um, I was very encouraged by one of my professors to think seriously about about my, my work and think about it as, you know, being something that I could do um, as a profession. So was there anything that kind of drove you specifically towards the studio arts aside from, you know, I mean, obviously teachers always offer their, uh, their guidance if, uh, students are wise enough to listen to them, of course. Um, but, uh, was there any kind of experiences that stick out to you? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be going to Oberlin at a time when 
I don't know if they still do this, but they had this incredible series of artists come in to give talks about their work. And I mean, I was, I was very ignorant at the time of contemporary art. Um, and so I didn't realize that these people were quite as famous as they actually are, but we had Andrea Zatel come in and she gave a talk and that was amazing. And then, um, Alan McCullough actually came in too, McCollum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the most important one, the one that really, um, impacted me was a visit by Pepon Osorio. And he came in and just kind of changed how I thought, contemporary arts could work. I mean, I didn't realize that art could go beyond just being, you know, what it is that it could actually affect people's lives in um, a very tangible way. So he was originally a social worker who then went into the arts and studied at Columbia and he showed us a number of pieces, but the one that really stuck out in my mind was this project where he had met this teenager who whose father was in jail and the teenager wasn't talking to his dad at the time and what he did was he interviewed the teenager as with a video camera and then recorded him talking to his dad and then he took that recording and brought it to the father in jail Mm -hmm. and then recorded the father responding to his son and then he created this conversation between the two of them um and he had this really wonderful installation where on one side it was this jail cell and that was, there was a TV in there that had the father talking and on the other side was sort of set up as this really beautiful, intricate house. And that's where the son was talking. And, um, I was just, I thought it was really visually interesting and it brought up a lot of, I don't know, societal issues as well, but it had this very clear, um, positive effect on the world. And that was something that, um, I didn't realize that art could do. I didn't know that it could connect people in such a tangible way. So once I saw that, I was really interested in kind of getting off of the traditional route of just, you know, art piece on the wall and Mm -hmm. thinking more about how my work could go beyond a gallery, um, become a part, be accessible, become a part of people's lives. And, um, and, you know, sort of connect with other people. So I, uh, at the same time, I was also, um, in the process of, um, dealing with the fact that my mother was selling our childhood, my childhood home. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of every holiday we came home, we had to go through stuff and say what we had to get rid of and what we could keep. And slowly, but surely the house was just becoming more and more empty, more and more echoey, Um, you know, there were these painful garage sales where people are going through your stuff and buying it for a quarter and, um, you know, and then just the moving is such an amazing (laughs) task. Yeah. Total ordeal of, um, you know, just, it's very physical. You're going out to Brooklyn to some storage unit. You're just, um, you're fighting. It's, it just brings up a lot of stuff. And, um, well, and it also, it reminds me how personal things can be that, might not have that same sentiment or attachment to, to someone else. Right. So that's something that's very interesting. Yeah. And I think, um, that's what I started thinking about how specific objects could have a personal history and a personal value that went beyond, you know, their utilitarian function or their market value. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've talked to so many people about my work and they, they say, you know, it reminds me of when my mother died and, you know, my sister didn't care about the China or the copper, you know, pots or whatever heirloom there was. She wanted the TV stand that we used to eat TV dinners on that you could get for $20 from some garage sale. But, you know, that's what she wanted because it, re- it gave her a memory. It reminded her of, of um, her home. Mm-hmm. You know, just that there's this this personal value to objects, and there's um, there's a history there. So, I started by really it, it comes from a um, a personal experience of feeling like I was a little displaced. I didn't really have a, a central home anymore, and so it started out with some projects about feeling displaced, and then it moved on to me trying to really understand how other people relate to the same topic. So. I began interviewing people and asking them to describe their childhood homes. And I was really interested in um, just seeing how somebody else can um, walk through their memories and recreate this whole space for me and describe it. And then inevitably, I wouldn't even need to, you know, seek it out really. They would always come to an object and then have some sort of story that was embedded in it. So maybe it's, Leroy's side table and he would describe the way the side table looked, but he would also tell me about how, um, apparently the side table always had it out for him. And when he was like seven, he was running by it and knocked into it and he still has a scar on his forehead and he's 74 years old now. So, you know, it left a, a mark, but, um, so you know, there's always something there. The time that his sister knocked the glass off of it and it broke and he was blamed for it. Um, and then, you know, there's some more positive stories as well, but, um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm really interested in taking these different, um, people and then reconstructing their past in a way, reconstructing them and kind of making these, um, objects that definitely are not functional, but, recall the past. But, but to think specifically with, you know, the works that are on your website, you have a, a variety of uh, different bodies of work. Was that something that you came to in terms of uh, interviewing people and kind of getting kind of their, their idea of home and, and place and kind of exploring this? Is that something that you're also exploring then at the same time? Or is it that one came before the other? Or was it something that you just did at the same time? Yeah, there was, I guess, a path. It first began when I moved down to Philadelphia from New York, and I was again in transition, and I was moving to a place where I didn't know anybody, and um, I was leaving behind a lot of places of significance. So what I did was I created these small ceramic houses, and then I left them almost like little tombstones Mm -hmm. (laughs) around in different places. And I tried to really craft them to the site and, um, and I would just leave them there. So anybody could pick them up or throw them out or, you know, I don't, I have no idea what happened to them. Most of them, if I, if I did happen to walk by the area again, they weren't there anymore. So, um, something happened to them, but, Mm -hmm. um, it really was about this idea of, abandoning, but also kind of letting go. And, um, when I moved to Philadelphia, I started another project called nesting in Philadelphia. And that one I did make a book for, it's a book of photographs, but, um, I, I was able to accumulate all this furniture from garage sales and from the trash, um, 
and I would wheel it around. So I had this one chair and I would stack everything inside the chair and the chair is on wheels. And I would just wheel it around town, set it up in very um, inhospitable places mm-hmm. and then take photographs of this very cozy situation in a very um, public place. And initially it was, that was it. That was the piece was that I was just taking these photos of this scene, mm-hmm. but people would inevitably come up to me and, you know, want to see what I was doing. And then, you know, we'd get to talking and I'd say, well, I mean, do you want to sit down? And I started having people pose for me, random strangers that just thought it was interesting. And, um, it became almost like a more interactive kind of piece. And, um, and I, I liked that. I liked that element of, um, the community kind of coming into my work in that way. And then after that piece, I started creating two dimensional versions. Um, so print make, using printmaking to create furniture. I started with a small wood block and then I found wood block was just, um, very physically demanding. Uh, I liked the aesthetic of it, but it's also incredibly expensive and more time consuming. So I started, um, then working with screen printing So I started screen printing onto paper and I created these life-size versions of objects that I would find on Craigslist. So I don't know if other people are like this. I think they are, but I was really into Craigslist for a while. I just loved looking at people's stuff that they had for sale. (laughs) I thought it was, you know, you'd sometimes get these amazing photographs into people's just glimpses into their lives. Well, and especially just the, I was, I'm thinking, especially when I look at you know, stuff on Craigslist. It's, it seems like some of it is just photographed so, so oddly, but I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about it too, in the way that people kind of, um, engage it and kind of consume it too. I just, I I became kind of obsessed with just looking at stuff on Craigslist. Sometimes for practical reasons, I was just looking for a couch or something like that, but, um, also because it became this great way of finding, um, an array of different types of furniture And so I began creating, um, an environment of, you know, chair, armchairs and side tables and, um, a a roll top desk. And I would print these, um, onto paper and then go around the city and Philadelphia, um, once you get out of center city, but even some parts of center city, there are a number of vacant houses, abandoned buildings. And, um, what I was doing was sort of re-inhabiting them by, wheat pasting my prints onto the sides of the buildings and they kind of looked as though somebody was throwing them out like putting them on the side of the building or but they also had a very um you know handmade quality they're all hand drawn and and printed and then they um they most of the furniture too it's not it's not really ikea furniture i usually pick something that's pretty personal and and looks um sort of dated too, I guess. My colors tend to be a little bit muted. So there's a sense that it was um, a precious object in some way. Maybe not precious in value, but it was a loved object. Um, and so I, we pasted these around the city. And then it was, it was kind of like an abandonment too. I was leaving them there. And whatever happened to them happened to them. You know, they were out in the elements. They would mostly it was human um, interventions. Somebody would either tag over it or paint over it because it's considered graffiti or rip it down. A lot of people try to rip them down. Um, they're usually not successful. <laughs> 
And so, so you were saying people were kind of like, they try to remove them, rip them down. Um, was, right. was it anything where you document it too, like after the fact? I would document them. Um, and sometimes if they sit up long enough, I would document them as they were just being weathered. So, um, you know, parts of it would start to come down because wheat paste is, it is water soluble. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, and I would I would usually document them definitely the next day, hopefully before anybody tagged over it or tried to rip it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I just kind of would leave them there and let them do their thing. And people would tell me like, oh, I saw your side table or I saw your lamp. And, um, right, right. <laughs> uh, because it, it was sort of distinctly mine. They're like, oh, you're in my neighborhood. And um, and it was it was really great. I liked the idea that people could casually interact with it. Um, well, I think there's definitely something nice about dedicating your time to going to an art museum or going to a gallery. Um, I think it's not incredibly accessible and I don't know, it's just a different experience than coming upon a work of art and just being able to have it be a part of your daily experience or, or your morning commute. Um, so I, I, I liked having it out there in the world and not just in a, in a gallery. And I think in a way I've sort of struggled with how I do put my pieces in a traditional gallery setting. Um, though the stark white wall of a gallery doesn't fit many of my pieces very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really think about installation a lot about backgrounds, about the colors of the wall, about how it's going to look in the space. Um, it's always an ordeal figuring out how I'm going to do a show because, you know, the, the width of the molding is important. If there are, um, I don't know, vents or something, like everything is important in terms of the space when you're working with installations. So, right, so right. It's not just, um, okay, here are my framed things and, I'll ship them to you and you can put them up kind of a thing. Well, and, and just to kind of uh, reframe it in terms of where we're at, these um, these uh, exterior decoration pieces, I mean, w- was that something that you did after graduate school or in graduate school? or? Yeah, I did it um, for my thesis exhibition in graduate school. And then um, I did do it later, too. And I, I still always print on paper. And I sometimes wheat paste them, but less often because, you know, I have... I can't be up at two in the morning wheat pasting and I don't know how my school would feel about me getting a misdemeanor or something. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of a different time in my life. Um, but I have, I mean, last year I did do a sanctioned wheat pasting at Bryn Mawr College. So I think those blue couches you were looking at, those were done for um, an exhibition. So, um some, sometimes it's okay. I mean, and actually it was really funny. Bryn Mawr is this gorgeous school. And, um, it, the, the difficulty was trying to find a porous surface that I could actually wheat paste. You know, you can see tons of them in Philly because you can use bricks. You can do it on, uh, on boards and on a lot of textures, but you can't do it on beautiful stone buildings because uh, it's not it won't hold a wheat paste so that was the, the challenge there i like that idea too though i mean though the, the, you know the kind of way that you describe like a, a painting also being kind of so i don't know so precious in some ways or at least the way that maybe somebody might treat it the idea of doing something like a you know a print of it 
you know, mm-hmm. something that's kind of reproducible, something that, again, you could, I mean, was there a lot of, were, were, were there ones that you had kind of screen printed and just made multiple runs of that so that you could kind of keep putting them throughout the city? Always, yeah. And I think that is a big part of it, is that um, by having a few of them, I can detach from them. They're not um, this one-of-a-kind thing. And even if I wheat, even if I wheat pasted all of them, I still have the positive. I could always print more of them, too. So um, that allowed me to really experiment with them more and to be a little more playful with it. So, And the same thing goes for my... So, so then I began... Um, working on fabric and it was just a matter of experimentation. I had some fabric and I was printing one of my armchairs and I decided, let me just throw one of these pieces of fabric under and see what happens. And, um, I started by making it into a pillow. So imagine this big armchair and I sewed it to a back piece of fabric and I, I don't even think I had a sewing machine, so I'm pretty sure I hand sewed it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then I stuffed it with ten pounds of stuffing, so it just looked grotesque. I mean, just a big, gigantic um, armchair pillow. And my mom saw it, and she said, "Oh, you know, you should learn how to. Tri- I need to teach you how to trapunto because <laughs> that would." This will this will just I think be more the look you're going for. And trapuntoing, I mean, it's a, an Italian term for. Um, sort of a quilting process where you sew it to a backing piece and you sew all your details. And then from the back, you rip it open mm-hmm. and, um, you stuff it from the back. So you can get this kind of bar relief, um, look to it. And so she taught me how to do that. And then I began creating, um, my stuffed series. I just call it stuffed. And, um, and I was making all of these objects, that I had been originally printing just on, on um, paper and I was turning them into um, fabric pieces. And um, the same thing kind of goes for them. Right now I'm working on a big installation for the Free Library of Philadelphia and it's going to go into their cafe space, which is this gorgeous room. Um, it's probably, I think it's 22 foot ceilings and um, it's going to go all around their their cafe, which is run by the... Um, homepage cafe. It's run by Project Home, which employs formerly homeless people. And um, tons of people go in there. It's the perfect venue, in my opinion, um, because it is this casual art viewing experience that, you know, will be part of people's everyday lives. But um, it's in a cafe. So there's going to be coffee, there's going to be, you know, sticky buns, all sorts of things um, around it. And I've just decided that, you know, probably the things that are on within six feet are going to get some coffee on them or right, going right. To, <laughs> to get some sticky fingers on them um, or maybe are stolen or maybe are tagged. And while that's upsetting, um, the fact that I have a few others folded and they can always be replaced really allows me to say that that's okay and that it's more important that the work is out there and that it's accessible than that it's, you know, safe and protected. So, right. so yeah, printmaking has really allowed me to free up and, and get away from the, the preciousness that I think can be so inherent in a lot of art pieces. And you, were, you were talking about, you know, kind of paging through Craigslist. You know, I know that there are certain projects like the Coming Home series. It seems like, again, those are very specifically tailored to 
individuals and their ideas of memories. But with the stuffed pieces, then, are, are they based off of your memories or kind of a combination of different experiences in that, in that regard? Or how, how does that all work? Yeah, so they began with um, the pieces that were off of Craigslist. That, those were the initial types of furniture. And then um, after doing the living room, I started working on Coming Home. And Coming Home was made specifically for the Philadelphia International Airport. Um, I had this great opportunity to show in one of their cases for nine months. And it's a 40-foot case. And I just knew as soon as I saw it that um, I wanted to fill the entire thing. Uh, It gets, I think, over the course of the exhibition, it had around 2 million viewers because people are just passing by it. And I mean, most of those people are just looking at their cell phones or trying to get to their gate or whatever, but you know, it still had a lot of people also stopping and looking and reading it. So, um, I decided for that, I wanted to think about the fact that it was in Philadelphia and work with this particular medium, but also start interviewing other people and asking them about their childhood homes. So I um, decided to try to track down four different people. And my criteria are just that they had to be from different neighborhoods and kind of different time periods and different backgrounds. And, um, you know, so one of them was an artist that I had worked with at one of my, my jobs. Um, and he's a 74 year old man from Eastwick. Another, um, one was my studio mates, I think ex-boyfriend's mother. (laughs) She was from the North Northeast and, um, you know, she was of Jewish descent and she was probably in her fifties. Um, and then another person who is in her 40s and another person in his 30s. Uh, so I just wanted to get very different types of people and um, find this commonality of uh, the childhood home and sort of investigate how um, they relate to home, but also their memories and, and find out, you know, what their what their childhood home was like and have them describe it. And then I would recreate the objects from their stories. And so, um, you know, they would describe things and then I would draw them and, and they would say, Oh no, a little taller or a little smaller, you know, more buttons here or something like that. Um, but it wasn't just about the object. It was also about the story that was behind it because they often had very distinct memories of certain events or, um, I don't know, something that happened in their personal history that was then attached to this object. So, um, I combined all of the pieces together to create four different rooms. So it's not as though one room is one person. Each room has objects from all four different people to create the sort of combined narrative. But the, just the idea that something like home can feel so kind of like personalized in some ways, but then it's also something that, you know, is is so universal, you know, in terms of the way of kind of exploring it through different kind of perspectives and, um, 
thinking about it in, in terms of, um, I guess, the way that we're kind of unified around it, too. Um, is, mm-hmm. is there any kind of particular reactions that you got from you know, individuals that were coming up for it? I mean, obviously, you weren't hanging out at the airport, uh, you know, for the whole time, but... Not the whole time, but whenever I did take a flight, I, I would go and sit in front of it and just kind of watch people and see how they interacted with it. And um, it was it was really fun to have it there. Um, but, yeah, that, that really is kind of at the heart of what I'm trying to do, which is connecting different people through this something that I personally feel as well, which is... Um, sort of a a nostalgia and, um, this inability to go back to the past. I mean, even though you wouldn't necessarily want to, um, I think it's just something that we can all relate to. And my current project, I I really wanted to open it up to, um, more than just, you know, four people, uh, from Philadelphia. How is this, um, you know, manifest in, in, uh, your current work? What are you interested in, in pursuing there? Um, so what I've been doing is opening up the process to include anyone. Um, I really want it to be incredibly accessible and anybody who's interested in participating can. Uh, and I've been posing the question to people to describe something that they've lost that they wish they still had. So an object from their past that they wish they, they currently, um, had, and then not only to describe it, but also to describe what they loved about it or, um, what they miss about it or how they lost it. And I've been getting, collecting these stories from a number of different avenues. I did a fellowship where I worked with seniors and, um, I talked to them about objects from their past. And so I recreated a a rocking chair that was in, um, someone, the front of somebody's house and their porch. Um, I've recreated roller skates and oil lamps and, um, real irons that were actually, you know, (laughs) heavy irons that would be put on the stove and just really interesting objects that I wouldn't normally, um, create on my own. And then all of those have a, a story that's associated with them. So, you know, the rocking chair that was, Vera's rocking chair and it was on their porch and it was for their parents to sit on. The kids were not to sit on the rocking chair. They had to sit on the bench or on the steps. <laughs> so right. and she remembers on hot summer days, you know, her, her parents sitting in those. And then, um, the oil lamps, that was this woman, Emma talked about how they didn't have electricity in their house. Um, she grew up in a very rural area in the South and, um, they had oil lamps just all over the house and that's how they would see at night. So just, um, was really interesting and allowed me to connect with these people that, um, you know, in a way that I, I normally wouldn't necessarily, you know, know about their, their past or be able to access that part of their memory. Um, so I also made a Victrola and, uh, found out what those were because I actually didn't right. know. <laughs> um, so, and then it's not just them. I also had a number of helpers and they're mostly college students and they had objects too. And so a lot of those are much more contemporary, you know, like a plastic dollhouse or, um, somebody even described their ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my recent exhibitions, I've been trying to, depending on the space, if they'll let me, um, I've been installing a little, sort of a suggestion box. I make them out of, um, cardboard and they look like little houses. And, um, 
it says, you know, submit your story so that viewers can actually take a little piece of paper and there's a pen and they can describe their own objects and put them in there as well. So I've collected a number of those that way. And, um, all of this I'm trying to combine for an installation at the free library. And there's also a box that's been sitting there for the past few months. And so people who are visiting the library are also contributing to the objects that will be created for, for that installation. So what's your interest in community and just this idea of showing in public spaces, but then also showing in galleries? What's, I guess, what are the different roles that go on um, in that, that setting or the way that you think about it in terms of the potential for your work? I think I, I like my work to be accessible both in the way that it's viewed. So I want the viewer to be interested in looking at it, but I also like making work that's inspired by the people that are around me. And um, I do feel like our society is pretty segregated, um, whether it be by age or by race or by gender. I do see a lot of separation between groups and, um, I like being able to connect and and look beyond those things to find what we have in common and kind of celebrate that. Um, I also have this personal interest in the idea of home and trying to rebuild, um, rebuild a sense of comfort and home and, and a place. And, um, I think it's sort of interesting in a way, my, my art has connected me to a community, both by interviewing people and getting to know people that way and build relationships by being inspired by their stories. But also, um, the making of my work is incredibly, um, arduous. It's really time consuming. And sometimes some of the prints are so large that I just, I can't print them on my own. And I've been able to work with, I've been been very fortunate to get helpers from University of the Arts. I've had a number of interns from them, um, but I've also had friends or community members, just people that want to help out, um, come in and help me print or help me sew. I sometimes have sewing parties and we, you know, just um, hang out and stuff and sew together while, and I'll provide, you know, beer and pizza or something like that. <laughs> um, so in a way, the art making has also formed this kind of community and has made me feel more like I'm a part of, um, of a particular place, which I think is where a lot of this, um, um, a lot of the, my, my issues with, you know, feeling a sense of displacement started from not, not having that community. So, um, so yeah, I think the interaction with the public is really important to me and, you know, particular venues, um, can be really exciting. And I think generally non-art venues, non-typical, um, kind of gallery venues are, are very exciting to me. I mean, I also love having exhibitions in gallery spaces. I mean, it's, it's really nice when, especially when it's very professional and people care about your work as much as you do. It's a wonderful feeling. Um, but I, I think I like having a balance between the two. So ha- having some exhibition shows, but also having a few venues that are um, a little bit different, a little bit more public, and um, it's kind of unexpected. So what do you have coming up in your exhibition schedule? I have a few shows coming up. In December, I'm installing a solo exhibition at the Delaware Center for Contemporary Arts in Wilmington, Delaware. And um, I have a few shows this 
uh, spring. I'm doing two shows, um, one for Snyderman Works Gallery. It's a group show for Fiber Philadelphia, which is a biannual um, fiber exhibition that happens um, in a number of galleries throughout Philadelphia. And then in April, I'll be doing an exhibition for um, the Center for Emerging Visual Arts in in Philadelphia and Center City. So let's see. So then next uh, next year, 2014, I'll be showing at the Free Library of Philadelphia, and that is the major project that I'm working on right now. It's a 60-foot installation that was supported by the Independence Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and it will be a series of five row homes that I'm creating. So they're about 12 feet wide and 18 feet tall. And I'm creating these cross sections of Philly row homes and inhabiting them with um, different objects that I'm collecting, sort of what I was talking about before, where it's objects that people have lost and wish they still had. So I'm anticipating it'll be about 90 objects that'll all be installed into in this show in the cafe of the Free Library. So that's that should go up September 2014. And then beyond that, I'm not sure, but I think that's pl- it's plenty for now. <laughs> exactly. It sounds like you're going to be pretty busy. Well, thanks again for taking the time to interview with us today, and we really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks once again to Kay Healy for being extremely patient through all of our technical issues. Once again, please check out her website, kayhealy.com, and see all of her other work. And while you're doing that, if you're curious about me, David Linaway, you know, your host, You can find my work at davidlinaway.com. Again, there's a hyperlink right on that homepage, so you can do it quite easily. But please go ahead and do that. I'd also say if this is the first time that you've heard a studio break, remember we have a number of different artists that have been featured. Again, you can access all of the interviews right there by going through the archives month by month. Or if you want, you can subscribe in iTunes. Just search for Studio Break on our podcast. Or once again, use that link in this very post to get to the iTunes store and subscribe there. Once again, if you enjoy this podcast and have been listening for a while, we'd really appreciate you leaving some positive feedback as it greatly helps with visibility in iTunes for other podcast junkies that need things to listen to on their way to work. So please go ahead and do that. Once again, we are on Facebook, so please like our Facebook page at Studio Break. Once again, we provide previews of some of the guests that we have coming up, as well as announce exhibitions from past guests, uh, competitions, things like that. So please like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And for those that listen on a fairly regular basis, I'm happy to say that we have some brand new studio equipment, some portable equipment, so we should have even more interesting podcasts coming to you now that we don't have any audio issues. So keep your fingers crossed. Thanks for being patient, and we'll talk to you real soon.